My guest this morning is Nora Ephron, a most perceptive young journalist whose uh, collections have been put together in a book, collections concerning the condition, you might say, of women, specifically American women, and the name of the book, based on a Yates quote, is Crazy Salad. Uh, the program in just a moment after this message. Before we hear from you, uh, Nora Ephron, and your reflections, there is a, a writer whom you admired very much, Dorothy Parker, when you were a small girl uh, living in California. Uh, she was your girlhood model and heroine. Suppose we hear her voice. This was a conversation uh, several years, a few years before she died, and that was about, what, 10, 12 years ago. And we'll hear Dorothy Parker's voice and then your thoughts about it. I led into something, and then she laughed, and then something further happened. We each have our troubles, each one, I suppose. And oh! Mrs. Parker, this is a personal observation on my part, having read some of your short stories. As I read your story, sometimes I'm so moved, I begin to think of Ring Lardner, and when I read Ring Lardner, I think somewhat of Dorothy Parker. Now, what's your feeling about that? I think that's much too high praise for me or for anybody. Well, what's your feeling about Ring Lardner? Well, I think he's great. I think lastingly great. Well, suppose someone said that you were. Are. I'd be embarrassed and uh, frightened, I think. Isn't this strange? Uh, if you don't mind my saying this, I think, Mrs. Parker, you are low-rating yourself, I may say this. It's my uh, feeling. As a reader, you have your right. But I'm afraid you're wrong. Somebody, I was thinking about <coughs> something that FPA said. Uh, perhaps there may be some... Uh, prospective writers listening, young writers, poets. He said something about your verse being so good, and he feels that your prose is so good, your short stories are so good because your verses, and he feels the direct connection. He says a good poet uh, could be a good short story writer, but unless he's a good poet, he can't be a good short story writer. Do you feel there's a, a basis for that? Well, I think it does teach you a great deal about words and about the rhythm that must be in prose, too. But I'm not a poet, you know, I just write verse. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but do you feel it helped? Uh, I think immeasurably. And I owe that all to Mr. Adams, who was a, the, the sharpest critic of verse, of its technical uh, aspect, I mean. Dorothy Parker, a certain moment in her life, toward the last years of her life, when quite obviously she had a lack of a sense of her own personal worth. And I thought it's a good way to open the conversation with Nora Ephron, who's a very marvelous writer, a journalist, who happens to be a woman, and thus her collection of her articles, pieces, various magazines, is called Crazy Salad, the subtitle of Some Things About Women, and Knopf, the publishers. And I was thinking, in hearing Dorothy Parker, I suppose her thoughts about herself, a woman you admired, you were a little girl, and you heard about her. Your parents were writers. Well, my parents were not only writers, but I think I grew up as obsessed with the myth of the New Yorker as, as many people in this country did. And it's, it's kind of shocking to hear the sadness of that voice and to grow up as I did so worshipful of her and then read about what her life was really like. Um, because you grow, I grew up on all the great stories and no one told me the sad parts. Um, there's a story in my book that I love that, that um, my parents were screenwriters and they knew Dorothy Parker and she was over one night playing anagrams with another Hollywood writer and he made 
the word curry, and he spelled it C-U-R-R-I-E. And Dorothy Parker was absolutely furious and insisted that there was no such spelling to the word, and there was a great fuss made. And my mother went out to the kitchen to resolve the argument and came back with a jar of Cross and Blackwell curry spelled C-U-R-R-I-E. And Dorothy Parker looked at it and said, what do they know? They don't even know how to spell cross. And because there was an E at the end right. of the double S. And I just loved that story. And I, you know, I thought how wonderful it would be to be someone who always got off the right line. You know, the number of times one has gone to bed and thought, what should I have said? What really should I have said at that moment? And she never had those moments. And to find out that she had no conception of her own worth um, and of her own gifts is a very sad thing. Now, as you say this, you are a young journalist today, Nora Ephra is, and the collection, Crazy, by the Crazy Salad is a Yeats quote, isn't it? Yes, it's from um, A Prayer for My Daughter, and the lines are, it's certain that fine women eat a crazy salad with their meat. And I thought it was a nice title for a book about women. And just as you admire Dorothy Parker, who you thought was a liberated free woman, and indeed she was, and, and as far as thought and uh, being a person, at the same time she was put down for many reasons, politically too, at the same time as a woman. And she had, you did a beautiful, it's not in your book, you did a beautiful profile of Lillian Hellman when, when uh, Pentimento came out, an yes. unfinished woman. You know, she and Dorothy Parker were very close. Yes, and her, her piece on Dorothy Parker in An Unfinished Woman is the only thing that I've read in about 10 years that I think really overcomes all those other things that were written about her sadness and her alcoholism and all of that. Um, there's a wonderful line in it um, where Lillian Hellman writes, the wit was never as attractive as the comment, often startling, often always sudden, as if a curtain had opened and you had a brief and brilliant glance into what you would never have found for yourself. And, you know, she wrote with such love about Dorothy Parker um, that it was quite a beautiful thing. I think about you, because I, I, I mentioned, we opened with Dorothy Parker's voice and Kamath Lundham and two quite admirable and gifted women, one surviving, the other not surviving. And here are you writing your, all your pieces, by the way. And the, uh, what is quite astonishing in a very good way is this book is very popular and seldom are pieces previously published popular because the recurring theme is women in our society, isn't it? Well, I think if the, if the book works at all, which God knows it's not for me to say, is that it does have a theme, that, that it doesn't kind of bounce around too much. Because, you know, I got kind of interested in the women's movement and then more and more involved in it over the two years that I wrote about it and and I kind of followed it and then and then in the end I got a little less and less interested it was it was very odd that, that I sort of duplicated I think what happened to the women's movement it went through a period of a lot of activity and anger and so did I and and then it sort of evened off to get down to business and life, and, and so did I. You speak of schisms in the women movement, you know, and uh, we, we're having this conversation not too long after the International Conference in Mexico City. Yes, indeed. 
it was interesting for me to read about that because I have a piece in the book about the women in Miami and and I had hoped that they'd kind of gotten beyond um, that sort of counterproductive behavior. It's not fair to say in that Miami, because... You mean the McGovern Convention? Yes. I mean, truly, if women are to be liberated, they ought to be able to squabble and be as nasty to one another as men are. And yet, at this point, it seems a shame when there's so much to be done that they spend so much time um, wasting their energy over who's going to lead which yeah. meeting, you know? At the same time this happens, when men also fight, but during you point out two, I think two lightweights, I think two, you know, incredible featherweights, uh, Theodore White and Eric Severide, who don't take women's, they, they are righteously uh, superior and they're amused. Who oh, are yes. themselves very light when it comes oh, to... Oh, well, I mean, you know, as, as you may remember during that convention, they were looking down on the women and saying, oh, these quotas for minority groups. The next thing you know, we'll have one-armed Armenians or something like that. And I just did a piece on the Teddy White book and... Uh, this and breach of faith. Brief breach of faith. His and hero fell from he, grace. He fails to mention that the only faith that was breached was his own, you know. Um, he talks about how this breach of faith that was occurred was the American public's faith in the institution of the presidency, and it's really Teddy White's ridiculous faith in, had, in Richard Nixon. Has it ever occurred to you, you nor Efren woman journalist, to do, to treat that you had, as he has tried, or Severide, again, another busher, tried to treat women. It'd be very funny. And they say, why are you being superior, in a sense? It would be that, wouldn't it? Yes, it certainly would. This is the sequence you have on, uh, this is the schisms, and you mentioned the word, the key word here, isn't it? choice, options. You use that word options and choice. That's yes, so I use it a little sardonically yeah. because because I think, you know, one of the one of the lines of the women's movement is that, that all of us who care about it say, we don't want women to do anything really. What this movement is about is choice. And really one means that. Um, I don't want every woman to go out and get a job if she doesn't want to. She can do exactly what she feels. But but deep down, I think there's this sneaking feeling that that I really believe that if everyone really got it together, the choice they would make is the one that I made. And I think that's true for a lot of women in the movement, and it's, it's the reason why we have so much trouble talking to one another. Um, we say that, but we don't really mean it. And and so, you know, there's a, there's a book I review by... Alex Kate Shulman called Memoirs of an Ex-Prom Queen. The entire novel is about how difficult, how absolutely abysmally difficult it is to be beautiful. Well, you know, I can't get into it, and I don't believe it because I was not beautiful, and I don't believe for a second that she wishes she weren't. And she's trying to tell me something that'll make me say, oh, yes, I recognize your pain, and I don't. Before I lead into something involving a quote you have of when named Martha McKay that makes this seem ridiculous. No, also, your first chapter is autobiographical, your first sequence about women and breasts and how difficult and horrible it was for some women who were, shall we say, full-breasted to speak of the difficulties. And you were saying it isn't. Oh, I know. I mean, when I, I wrote this piece on, it was called A Few Words About Breasts, and I said at the end that, that I have a lot of friends who always used to tell me that I had nothing to complain about and that it was much, much, much worse to have big breasts. And I don't. I'm sorry. I don't believe it. 
And I still get letters about it, you know. I still get these endless letters saying, I, you're wrong, you're wrong. No, I think what's, what's good about, uh, about Nora Ephron's writing is that she gets to a core of something, you know, that maybe there's self-indulgence involved here, too. Because you quote, Mar perhaps you should read that, the quote of, who is Martha McKay? Martha McKay is a woman uh, who is prominent in the women's movement. She's a North Carolina Democrat. And, white uh, or black? She's white, and uh, she's a, I think she's a sidekick of uh, Terry Sanford's, actually, but she's been very active in the women's movement, and I found her one of the sane voices that I met there. And at the end of the convention, after all this nonsense had gone on between Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, and I should say it was mostly Betty Friedan's nonsense, I was talking to Martha, and she said, I'm 52 years old. I've gotten to the point where I choose what I spend time on. Look at the situation in North Carolina. 44% of the black women who work are domestics. In the eastern part of the state, some are making $15 a week and toting. You know what that is? That's taking home roast beef, and that's supposed to make up for the wages. We're talking about bread on the table. We're talking about women who are heads of households who can't get credit. They hook up with a man, he signs the credit agreement, they make the payments, and in the end, he owns the house. When things like this are going on in the country, who's got time to get caught in the rock crushing at the national level? I'm just so amazed that these gals fight like they do. It's so enervating, she said. Enervating, she's ironic too, of course. Yes, absolutely. Enervating over what? Now, this is, a, I'm a guy, a man, a male and not putting down something, but you have a sequence here on consciousness raising sessions, rap sessions, and you're implying here some little self, at times, narcissism. Yes, I, I think, um, you know, I went into consciousness raising, and, and like a lot of people who go into it, I found it quite thrilling at the beginning because it's, it's very voyeuristic and fascinating, and it's always interesting to find out that as bad as whatever you think your situation is, someone else has it worse. And I found that my own consciousness raising group didn't work at all the way supposedly consciousness raising is supposed to. It's supposed to be this elevating thing about sisterhood. And, you know, most groups without leaders are very dangerous little things. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And sometimes the thing that can happen is that you get a stake in people's situations being worse than your own. You really don't want them to change. It's so comforting to you that you've got it better than somebody else. And my own group became really an encounter group. And um, at the point when they encountered me, I thought I'd better get out of it. It's a group without leaders. What do you mean? Well, I mean that I think that some therapy groups work very well for the people who are in them because they're controlled by a therapist or by two therapists who understand how to take an encounter and turn it to the effect of both people involved. I do believe this. Um, this just didn't go on. This was just this freewheeling thing where, where all the women were married and they were all talking about their marriages and everyone was saying, oh God, you put up with stuff like that from that rat? And I don't think that works. You know, I'm thinking now, uh, there's a danger here of my becoming Theodore White or Eric Severide and 
smiling patronizingly upon conscious raising groups. There probably are, I'm guessing. Well, As I'm, you say, this is narcissism. Well, At I'm, the same time, there's a certain, this is a transition moment, isn't it? Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to be Theodore H. White either, and I hope I make it clear that I'm really just talking about my own group. Um, but, but, you know, and I think obviously when a movement goes through the kind of true upheaval that I think the women's movement has caused in this country, even for women who have no comprehension that it's affected their lives, there are bound to be um, excesses, and I don't mean to be patronizing about that. I am disturbed about it. Um, I think that it's a shame that the pendulum sometimes has to swing so far in the other direction to get real change to occur. Doesn't this happen, though, when there's a certain kind of breakthrough? There's a wild swing of the pendulum, and there's a lack of humor, perhaps, at a certain moment oh, in rage. And God then, knows. now, wh do you sense a change happening now? We'll come to another well, subject in a moment. Well, I really do. Um, I think that the women's movement went through a period three or four years ago when it was all kind of public demonstrations and quite outrageous things were going on, and there was a fringe that was dominating the scene and and making a lot of statements that disturbed those of us who were heterosexual and, and so on and so on. Um, now I think it's settled down to what the real business really always was, which is getting women elected to office, and I mean the right women, I don't mean any woman, um, fighting the legal battles that have to be fought. And at the same time, there's something going on that's much quieter and less easy for the media to see, which is that the message got through. And you go around this country um, and you speak, as I occasionally do, to women whom you think would never have been affected by the movement. And they have been. And they're changing the way they live. Basically, you're talking about our society itself, aren't you? When you're talking about women, you're talking about men as well, obviously. When you're talking about uh, the right person, they were elected to office. You know, at the same time, there are two heads of government right now, Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir, aren't there? Yes, which brings us back to Teddy White, doesn't it? Because because it's always amusing to me when I hear women in the movement saying that if only women ran the government, we would not have war. And we don't have really great role models to draw that conclusion from, you know. And you have a sequence here, and you were in Israel. And Golda Meir, her, her whole approach is that which has been hitherto a very macho approach. Well, and I think it's absolutely necessary, given that she's the head of state of Israel. Um, I don't know what would have happened to that country if she had been a pacifist. I don't think it makes any sense at all. Um, but she isn't a feminist. Um, you know, Israel, it was a great shock to me when I went there to cover the war because I knew what most people know about it, which is that they had, at that time, a woman as the head of state, and they had women in the Israeli army. Well, as it turns out, Golda Meir is the only woman who has ever held cabinet rank in Israel. Um, and the women in the Israeli army perform all the clerical tasks. They don't even drive to the front. They don't drive colonels around the way the wax did during World War II. You mean less? Much, much less. And there is an entire system of social law, like the divorce laws, that are unbelievably discriminatory toward women. Um, you cannot get a divorce in Israel without your husband's consent um, in any way. Your testimony in a court of law is meaningless. Um, 
It's fascinating. You have a sequence. By the way, there's a, uh, your chapter is really fascinating. If a married woman and someone not her husband has a child, he's a bastard. He, she, a bastard. Yes, but if a married man has a child with a single woman, it isn't. Am I doing that right? It's late. Well, um, unfortunately, too right. Yes, I mean it's it's quite um, it's quite a shocking thing, and uh, and it goes on all the time. And they're always having to appeal to the head rabbis because because there are always cases of of army officers who find out that um, there was one a year before I was there of of two a sister and a brother in the Israeli army who discovered that their mother had not had a legal, it, it wasn't exactly a divorce. As I recall, she had come to Israel as a refugee and thought her husband had died and had remarried and had these two children. And then to her great surprise, many years later, the husband turned up. And the two children were declared bastards and went through a terrible thing because you cannot marry in Israel if you are a bastard. Um, and a bastard only means that your mother was not married under in the eyes of the law. The reason I emphasize the your, your Israeli Israel chapter is that there's a myth involved, a legend, you know, that perhaps they are more have more say, and you you're even there, you see, or especially there. And as far as Indira Gandhi is concerned, little comment is needed at this moment too. The idea of uh, the woman in charge will lead toward peace and enlightenment. Yes, indeed. Um, and we've certainly found that out recently, haven't we? <laughs> There's a chapter here, one of your pieces. Actually, this is a collection of different works you've done for different magazines, isn't that it? Yes, mainly for Esquire. Esquire. There's one you have here, and this is perhaps one of the most discussed. If I were to choose a key chapter, it's that. These with commercials, with vaginal spray. You have a long chapter on that, and I find this of interest because it deals with commercials, per se. But in this case, it's especially, uh, you know, obscene, the idea. Why did you discuss that? Well, you know, about a year after the feminine hygiene spray had been introduced as a product, for, for the first few months I kept hoping it wouldn't catch on. And then all those ads got onto television because they managed to change all the restrictions about advertising the product. And the product really caught on. And I said to my editor I wanted to do a piece about the selling of the feminine hygiene spray. And I had no idea at that point. I knew that it was an appalling product and that it took advantage of the worst kind of fears about natural odors. You know, um, Ralph Nader has spoken a lot about this, and he calls it the why wash it when you can spray it ethic. But um, I had no idea that I was going to run into this incredible hexachlorophene mess that happened. What is hexachlorophene? Hexachlorophene is a, is a deodorant chemical that has been used for years and years in hospitals in a product called Fisohex, and it has, it's also the it was the main ingredient in Dial soap, and it's used it was used in most deodorants, and of course deodorants that are used on parts of the body like the underarms, you know, it's not an equivalent part of the body to the genital genital area. And what they found within a very short time was that women were coming into gynecologists reporting incredible irritations as a result of using these sprays. Finally, the FDA managed to get hexachlorophene out of all products without, you know, non-prescription products, but only as a result of a terrible mess 
in France where a number of infants were killed owing, owing to the use of it. Now we're coming to something even more, uh, we'll come to the native quote moment, and that's the whole idea of the uncleanness of Well, women. you know what was so fascinating was that when I started working on it, one of the first persons that I spoke to, um, who was Leonard Lavin, the head of Alberto Culver here in Chicago, who really considered himself some kind of uh, savior of womankind for having introduced this product, um, justified himself by telling me that the, pr the use of this product went back to biblical times. And I could barely suppress a smile when he said this to me. And I was very early in my research, and of course I realized that he was absolutely right, that that primitive taboos about what, you know, women bleeding and what women smell like um, are as old as civilization. And, and if you go back to the Golden Bough, it says flatly that there is not one civilization that has not had taboos toward women. The Jews, of course, um, the Orthodox Jews still practice this by by insisting that after a woman's menstrual period she go to a ritual bath. Um, an Orthodox Jewish woman is not allowed to sleep in the same bed with her husband while she's having her period. But there are many other um, civilizations that do this. In, in Africa, women who are menstruating are not allowed to look at cows for fear that they will stop giving milk. Not accidental. The period is called, the period, the monthly, is called the curse. Yes, well, that's, that's, I think that's something else. I don't think we can blame that on the feminine hygiene spray people. And I don't think, by the way, that you can, you know, you can say that they created a demand for this product, which is a very interesting thing that a lot of American commercial enterprises do. You know, we, we certainly never knew we needed this until it came along. But they did not create the anxiety about it. That's, that's very clear. And the unfortunate thing is that they played on something that, that is absolutely ridiculous, you know? See, now, I'm a man reading your book, and I read this sequence about the vaginal spray, but I see the commercial as both the commercial you see, as obscene, demeaning to both men and women. You yes, see. I you think happen so to, too. You happen to have a dramatic case of this, but it applies to both, doesn't it, you see? Yes, it really does. Um, and, you know, as, as Nader says, you know, year after year, in any industry, the sellers become very acute in appealing to those features of a human personality that are easiest to exploit. Everyone knows what they are. It's easiest to exploit a person's sense of fear a person's sense of being ugly, a person's sense of smelling badly, than it is to exploit a person's appraisal or appreciation of nutrition, and shall we say less emotive and more rational consumer value. See, now you're talking about the commercial, and this applies to both men and women, the idea of the commercial. You happen to point out a dramatic case. See, in there, some, uh, this is, I'm gonna take you slightly to task, if I may. There's one case, sure, studs. You, you, you point out that, uh, uh, Judith Christ uh, unwittingly her name was let the the movie critic Judith a very good I critic I don't by say the that but go on no 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 I'm saying that and you see a professor selling scotch or a college president she says that yeah I yeah. don't say and that I'm saying that's equally bad no you know it was fascinating to me because Judith Christ did an ad for one of these products I think it was pristine which which as I I don't want to um, make a terrible mistake here, but I, I think it was the product that caused the most irritation among users. And I called her to ask her about it, and she gave me an answer 
that I felt explained nothing at all, and I quoted it. And I thought I had put her away because I don't think there's any excuse for what she did. And she subsequently wrote a letter thanking me profusely for quoting her accurately. Um, so, you know, but I don't think that her her excuse is anything no, at meant, all. No, I meant was, you know, the, I thought it was you, it was she, no, no, who was saying, why should, why should a college president oh, endorsing a scotch be considered uh, with more, uh, you know, understanding? Yes. I'm saying he is equally guilty. She you know is, I mean? yes. No, she says um, she consulted some friends before doing it, um, having been offered $5,000 and and her photograph by Richard Avedon. It's nice to know what someone's price is, isn't it? One one likes to think one would sell out for at least middle six figures. But, but um, and she says, what did bother me was the idea of it being a vaginal deodorant. So I consulted some friends. They said, boy, are you ever being sexist? If it were bond bread, you'd do it. College presidents do commercials for the right scotch. Why, because it is a feminine hygiene spray, what difference is it a mouthwash from a vaginal wash? This is small, unenlightened thinking if we're going to get silly about vaginas. She said, well, to me, the difference is so extraordinary. The difference in the danger of the product is so complete. And I thought that quote hung her completely. But you know, I have to tell you something. Last year, I was up at the University of Rochester speaking, where they have a very active women's group. And one of the women asked me how I could write for Ms. Magazine when they took ads from uh, cosmetics products. And I said that that didn't bother me, that what made me glad about Ms. was that they, they didn't take ads from feminine hygiene deodorants. And this woman who asked me became absolutely furious, and she said they're the same thing. And I said they're not at all the same thing. You know, no one, no one is forcing you to use lipstick if you want to. And and, but you know, you if you use lipstick, whatever, whatever the implicit message is, and I think there is an implicit message in cosmetics that you don't look good enough yourself. If you use lipstick, you do not get a serious infection. You do not get irritations. You do not get a sensitivity about probably, you know, the most sensitive area that well, no, I, I want to go a, a step further has. here, and that's, that's the point of, I perhaps have a hang-up on commercials, and that is the question of being accepted. If you use something for, and having a status symbol like a college president, I think he is equally as guilty selling the scotch this guy who's supposed to teach the young what life's about and values, as she unwittingly involved with vaginal spray. It's I think the so going too. up I have, that's what I mean. No, I think so too. And so. listen, you know, I mean, my heart sank when Yule Gibbons endorsed Raisin Bran or Grape Nuts or whatever it was. Yule Gibbons, you know, the, the great yeah. forager for wild food, you know, endorsing this. See, we have one of the most distinguished actors in the world selling this, selling that. But basically, what is good about your book, before we turn the tape over for here, the second half, is that you hit these, you hit very tender spots, and not just about women, I think, even though the book is called Crazy Salad, the eighth quote, the subtitle, some things about women might add, and men, by virtue of being about women, and not for the publishers, and as I turn this tape, we'll continue the second half. We'll resume after this message. We resume the conversation with Nora Ephron 
and her book, Crazy Salad. You have a sequence here about yourself. You're a journalist. We hear a great deal about, through the years, objective journalism. And there's uh, many objections by the traditional journalists who say they're objective by some of these younger journalists who take positions. Now, you're a feminist and a journalist at the same time. This creates something of a conflict, doesn't it? It certainly does. Um, you know, I have to say that I've never believed in objective journalism, and no one who is a journalist in, in his or her right mind does, because all writing is about selecting what you want to use. And as soon as you choose what to select, you're not being objective. But I think, you know, I've, I have only been a journalist for 13 years, and there have been some very big changes in that time because of the civil rights movement, which certainly changed the way black journalists covered events, and, and then the peace movement, which I think involved everyone, women's movement. And um, for someone like me, who was sympathetic to the women's movement and was trying to cover it as a journalist, I felt constantly in conflict between what my obligations were as a journalist, which were, you know, to the truth, really, or to the truth as I saw it. I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but that is what journalism is about. And, and that was in constant conflict, it seemed to me, with the women's movement, because it always seemed that if I wrote the truth about the movement, it would somehow hurt it. You know, we were talking about the Democratic Convention. If you write that the women spent the Democratic Convention squabbling among themselves, aren't you giving people who want to put it down the ability to say, oh, those women, you give them a little power and they just behave like, you know, cats and dogs toward each other? Um, it happened constantly when books would come into the office for me to review because there's one book in particular that I talk about, a book called Women and Madness by Phyllis Chesler. Um, this is a book which has a very, very interesting, valuable thesis, which is that, that the psychoanalytic profession has always been biased against women. Terrific thesis. But you read the book. The book is sloppy. It's clear that the research isn't as good as it should be. And yet you think, if I write this, doesn't that give people the right to say it's a lousy book, which isn't really entirely what you want to say? Well, this you see, we come to it now, don't we? This is one of the aspects. It involves black critics and black books. It involves everything. The time has now come, hasn't it? Well, it really, I mean, it's really terrible, I think, because I did a piece on Pat Loud's book that's in my collection, and I didn't like her book. I thought it was an interesting book and worth writing about, but I put it down. A couple of months later, I was attacked in Ms. for not being a good sister to Pat Loud. Well, I don't believe this. I don't believe that I should condescend to women, because I think that's what's implied here. Well, I, I think they think that we should baby books by women because the politics is good. Well, I wasn't aware. I wish I, wish I were aware that Ms. had criticized you for that, because I'm... Uh, I was very furious in watching that incredibly banal program and shallow in the American family, the Loud family. It was horrendous. And if I may say this, if I may just offer my own thoughts here. In watching that program, I thought this is exactly the opposite of, not what I would do, but just the opposite of what is. It had nothing to do with possibility. It showed a banal family. And I remember Margaret Mead and others saying this was a very important program. It was ridiculous. Oh, I know. It was a dull because it had nothing to do with 
possibilities. No one, no, not meaning to demean the producer of it, but it was horrendously dull and bad, and I'm, I'm astonished that Ms. criticized your criticism of Pat Loud, who's oh, just well, a pathetic you know. person. I knew that. But I don't mind criticizing no, the no, producer of it. No, I want to know why they did that. To, no, see? because they feel that, that you put down any woman's book. I mean, this is what this writer said, not Ms. Magazine, oh, but I this see. particular writer felt that if you put down a woman's book, you're putting down women. So you're talking now about more than women. You're talking now about the very nature of, of finally hitting, uh, we're talking about standards now and values, and I think we've come to a certain moment when standards, aesthetic as well as ethical, have to be hit. Well, I think also, you know, it's political too. We've been talking about Israel. Um, it's fascinating to me that if you go to Israel as I did and your reaction to it is complicated, and there's no way, it seems to me, for it not to be if you're a reporter there. And if you write at all about what Israel is like, if you pass, as I did, children's playgrounds and see little children climbing over tanks which are provided as playground equipment. Now you understand that this is a country that is that has to be geared for war. It has a universal draft. It is in desperate danger. I am totally sympathetic to Israel. And yet if you say that and if you feel about it as I do as a product of you know, the Vietnam War, I have very, very, very ambivalent feelings about war at this point. If you say that... Why ambivalent? Well, I mean that, that it's conceivable to me that I might hear of, of something that I think is a just war. I have not heard of one in, in my adult lifetime, but it's... World War II, possibly. Well, I, that wasn't my adult well, your lifetime. lifetime. You know, that was my infant Forget lifetime. about generation. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's conceivable that there might be something I think of as a just war, so I have to leave room for that. But if you say but that that just, bothers but, you, me, you are deluged yeah. with mail from people who say that you are an anti-Semite. By the way, I just want to put a little covering thing for me. I said World War II, a just war. I didn't, for the moment, even talk to what led to World War II, which is something else entirely, or the Spanish Civil War, or other things. Yes, God knows. And, but coming back to uh, Israel, I don't know about little kids in tanks. Often we see, uh, now and then, uh, something about China, and uh, there's good stuff, but you have to say, look at those kids, and those wooden guns, look at those kids. And, uh, and then you mentioned Israel, which is rather interesting, you see. I think double standards rather interesting, too. Yes, it certainly is, and it's also the other side that we were talking about is interesting, which is that true believers don't like to hear any kind of complicated response to something. That's why, of course, your book is so good, because, it, as I say, it is beyond the subject of women. You have a very fascinating sequence there called The Hurled Ashtray. Perhaps you should tell <laughs> that story. This is a funny one, at the same time rather revealing. So well, why don't you tell the story? It's... it's uh, it's a funny story. Michael Corda, who is a writer and editor at Simon & Schuster, wrote a book called Male Chauvinism a few years ago. And, and when it was being printed in a magazine, the magazine sent an episode from it to me for a comment. And the episode went like this. Michael Corda and his wife, who is a very pretty woman, and another woman, went to a restaurant in London. And they were having dinner, and there was a group of gentlemen sitting, I shouldn't say gentlemen, a group of men sitting at another table who began trying to get their attention. 
and they began doing charming things like throwing bread balls at, at Mrs. Corda's back. And she ignored them. And after a while, they sent the waiter over with a little silver tray with a card on it, which they delivered to Mrs. Corda. And the card said, I would like to sleep with you. Please tick off your favorite love position from the ones listed below. And Mrs. Corda looked at this thing and showed it to Michael Corda, who threw an ashtray at this table of drunken men. And the next thing Michael Corda said in this story, they were out on the street having a fierce fight. Mrs. Corda was furious at him for defending her honor. She said she was perfectly capable of doing it herself and that it had been sexist of him to take on the job. And that was really the sequence that was sent. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, you know, I mean, this is, this is a fascinating episode uh, for this time. And first of all, all these things leap to mind like, did they pay the check? How much did they tip? What kind of a head waiter was it that would deliver this tacky card? Um, what was the other woman looking like? Was it raining that night? Were they in a bad mood? But beyond that, I thought that basically Mrs. Corda had reduced a very complicated and interesting situation to a set of movement platitudes. Because the, the truth is that for me at least, it's very confusing to know what you want from a man, uh, given the women's movement. Um, I want to be independent, and I am, and I want to be considered a person in my own right, which I usually am, but I still have a lot of feelings about being taken care of by a man. I also feel that that, that printed card was as much an insult to Michael Corda as it was to his wife, and that for her not to recognize that was demeaning to him. Um, I think that any woman who allows bread balls to bounce off her back um, doesn't have a lot of stature when she gets up and says, why can't I deal with this novelty card? Because she hasn't been dealing with the bread balls. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because I think it will be a shame if, if what happens from the women's movement is reduced to little confrontations What like would you have done? Oh, God, I wish I'd known. You know, I mean, I think the ideal thing the most ideal thing is to find yourself at that moment with Gary Cooper, um, which does not happen to be a fate that most of us... Do you really believe that? Well, I think, yeah, I do. I mean, I would, because I don't want to confront... You like the strong, silent macho man. Well, you know, first of all, um, I, I do like to be taken care of, and I don't like having fights with people. I have to say that. But, and the ideal thing, obviously, would be to have a man just stand up and by the, his girth or his height or something, um, be able to make all those people leave the restaurant. But, you left but, but the truth is, if it were a normal situation, I think what I would do is um, look at the card and um, ask the waiter why he had delivered it um, and, and go on with my dinner. Now I'm going to add one thing. Who are the guys who threw it? Aren't they pathetic and sad? Now, wouldn't you have gone over and say, hey, you guys are in trouble? 
No, I don't think I would have bothered with them because I don't think that you can save them. I mean, I think anyone who buys a printed novelty have, card is in trouble. Wouldn't that have ended it? Wouldn't that have ended it? I don't even think you have to yeah. confront them. I think that that basically. People like that get off from some kind of response that you make. No, but since we're dealing with a world of people, then everybody is involved, even the guys are through with the bread bowls, is my point. And to me, they're kind of pathetic and sad God and funny. God knows. And so I'm not a woman, but were I, say, I fantasize. But let's say you I were the man at the table, what would you have I'd done? I'd have said, hey, you guys have got a problem. I don't know what I'd have said. You guys got a big problem. And all of a sudden, everything is deflated because they're sad, you see? If you look upon them as sad, instead of menaces, then you have to... Well, I, I can't... This is, this is, I'm, can't I'm assuming see them as menace, menaces. Yeah. I just see them... Yeah. What I do see them as is, is are people who can ruin an otherwise pleasant meal, not by the printed novelty card, which I think is just a sophomoric joke, but, but by drunken behavior and throwing bread balls, what which I don't think about? is terrific. Your book reads all sorts of aspects of... Uh, human behavior right now in the year 1975-76, doesn't it, in a way? In well, a way. I hope and so. That's what the book's about. But, you know, yeah. going back to that just for a second, the truth is that they should have gotten off the ship when the bread balls were thrown, you know? And I have to tell you, the other night I was at a restaurant in New York where I've never been to without a man. I went there with a woman friend of mine, and there was no table, and we went to the bar to have a drink. And... The bartender said, are you women unescorted? And I said, yes. This restaurant is called Chris Sella, by the way. I'd like to say that. I hope none of you will ever go there. And What city? New York City, East 46th Street. And I said, yes, we are unescorted. And he said, I can't serve you. So I turned to the men to our right at the bar, and I said, this bartender won't serve us unescorted. Will you do me a favor? And the man said, of course I will. And... That was all the bartender needed, and he served us the drinks. Now, subsequent to this, we have to wait 45 minutes for a table while men who come in later than us are being seated right and left. It's a kind of men's hangout. And I realized that I had lost my right to complain because I hadn't walked out when that bartender said that. And I feel the same way about the court. You hadn't walked out. You could have sued, couldn't you? Now, if you were black, they wouldn't try that on you now, would they? No, they wouldn't. But question what they do if you were black and a woman. They probably yeah. would have called the police. What would have happened? Maybe not. You well, see, it's an interesting world we live in right now. Yes. And also fears on the other side, too, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Maybe they're afraid that the black would be more, would be more self-assertive, perhaps, you know. Uh, you see, this is interesting, isn't it? You also have sequences in you call Crazy Ladies, and involves a woman named uh, Barbara Howard, book of laughing all the way, a Washington woman and Martha Mitchell, two crazy ladies, as in Yates again, Crazy Jane. Yes, indeed. And Crazy Salad. But they're not crazy. Well, you know, I have to say about Martha Mitchell, I spent a week watching her do a television show in Washington, and I thought she handled herself very well. It's the one piece in the book that I think I might be wrong about. I think she might really be wacko. Um, I don't think Barbara Howard is at all crazy. I think that, but she, she has, she had in the period that she was writing about a kind of syndrome that's very common in places like Washington where women exist through the men that they're with. Perhaps you should explain a little bit, Barbara, how it's interesting because we're talking about something else now, and that's power, power and lack of power. And Barbara Howard wrote a book called Laughing All the Way, and she had been a 
celebrated woman in Washington had a television program and knew a president. But she thought she was powerful, but she was simply being used, wasn't she? Well, I don't know if she was being used as much as, as um, she just misunderstood totally what her worth was. Um, she was just a kind of, a, you know, a, a clown that they that they that amused people at a certain point and it never occurred to her that she could amuse them in her own right in some real way. Um, I, I liked her book very much and I found it very moving and sad because because I think that what she went through is a very common thing. You know one of your before perhaps two more one of your moving chapters to me is about Rosemary Woods President Nixon's private second 18-minute gap on the tape. Now here's a perfect case of sublimation of self towards someone yes, else. Yes, and you know, when I did this piece on Rosemary Woods, which was right after the tape erasure, um, I went to talk to so many of her friends, and they were all women like her. In their mid-50s, they'd come to Washington, they'd signed on in what they felt was the most extraordinarily glamorous job any young woman could have, which is to be a secretary to a congressman. and. They had devoted their lives to these men. Now, it's bad enough when, to me when a woman devotes her life to a congressman she's married to, but to not even be the wife, to not even get to go anywhere, to get to Capitol Hill every morning at 7.30 and work every night till 10 o'clock and, and end um, unmarried, and I, I have no problem about being unmarried. I'm not married, but these women do. These women never meant not to get married, and they live in these kind of tawdry little apartments that are either full of ceramic elephants or ceramic donkeys, and it is just heartrending. Well, I think that your chapter in Rosemary Woods, I think, maybe the most important chapter in your book, because here we have something that's been rarely touched upon. A woman of a certain age who's a secretary, private sec confidential secretary, and the boss, the boss is her life. A complete sublimation to it. And in every, you, you see these ladies, you see these women on buses, you see them. They're above typists, they're in charge of the office, it would seem, and yet there is no, it's a surrogate life. Yes, it is. And she, of course, was, quote, luckier, unquote, than many of her friends in that her boss rose all the way. Um, but, you know, it ended, it ended horribly, I think. Um, this is by way of a very cursory conversation with Nora Ephron about her book, the book, a, a combination, a collection of various essays, pieces that are very revealing indeed. I say to you, with men as well as with women. And perhaps again, before we say goodbye, slight taking a task, uh, Jan Norris. Morris. Uh, Jan Morris, English man, woman who became a woman. You're very harsh, it would seem, in this case, on somebody who had a right to try to be what that person's psyche wanted him, her to be. Well, I, I cannot tell you how much I didn't want to do that, Studs. Um, I first read about... Jan Morris, who, as you know, was, as James Morris, a famous English journalist who climbed Mount Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary, et cetera, et cetera, and decided in his 40s to give in to what had been a, an almost lifelong obsession, which was to be a woman. And 
I first read about this in the New York Times Magazine and found the story so moving, I cannot tell you. Um, partly because I think that all of us have fantasies of some sort or another. And most of them are unattainable. I mean, there, you know, there's no way, if, if my fantasy were to look like Elizabeth Taylor, there isn't any way I can do that. There's no one I can pay to give me that. He had a fantasy that, as he grew older, became medically possible. And it fascinated me that his decision was to go with it, not to spend 30 years in analysis working out why he felt this way. So I immediately bought the book that, now we have to switch to the she, that she wrote, Jan Morris. And I was very sad about it because it turned out that what, what James Morris wanted to be was not a woman, but a girl. And that his idea of being a woman had to do with having wine stewards bat their eyes at him and gas station attendants wink and have people change her tires and so on and so on. And, you know, I think it is probably more interesting being a woman now than it has ever, ever been and that Jan Morris doesn't know anything about that, perhaps, you know. Perhaps this is the way. I haven't seen that aspect of it in your... No, I see what you're talking about. By, this, by the last way to end it is just this. You are a young woman, gifted, a writer. The year is the latter third of the 20th century. Being a woman right now, I imagine, is a very exciting moment. Yes, it is. It's terrific. Absolutely terrific. Don't you wish you were one? <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Fantasies again. Well, there is an, androgy an androgynous strain in all of us. I suppose so, yes. That's at this moment. You know, I remember meeting a very, very rich, he was a million Italian communist millionaire, the R such, and a good a number in Italy. And this guy was saying, I wish I were not a millionaire. I wish I were a black peasant. I see you're full of crap. But what he meant to say was he thought that his particular class was dying and other was coming up. He was over romanticizing. Well, in a sense, the parallel could be drawn here. I suppose. I suppose. But it is, it's okay being a woman now. I like it. Try it sometime. That's a good way to end this conversation. <laughs> Nora Ephron and Crazy Salad. Give us that Yeats quote, that Yeats quote again. It's certain that fine women eat a crazy salad with their meat. I suppose men too might. Some things about women with subtitle. Knopf, the publishers, Alfred Knopf. Thank you very much. Thank you, Studs. <laughs>